When somebody buys a company, they're not buying it to just get the employees in the code. They're buying it because they want to keep growing it, maybe sell it someday or get the profits from it. If a company's going to buy you because they're going to, your company's going to keep growing, why wouldn't you stay and keep growing it? If your customers love your product and they buy more and they don't leave, this uh, flywheel can increase. Three founders got to revenue, almost a million dollars in revenue, just the three of them with this early product. You don't need to hire 20 people or 500 people to get started. That control is pretty fundamental to the, I would say, the success, but also the reasonable life that you can have as a practical founder growing a business. It's all hard, but it doesn't have to be harder with bad stress than it needs to be. Welcome to De-Stress Your Business, the podcast where we show you how to get incredible results in your business without constant stress. I'm Alexis Kingsbury, a serial entrepreneur and founder at Air Manual, and I'm joined today by Greg Head, a seasoned entrepreneur and influential advocate for practical founders. With a rich background spanning both VC-funded and practical startups, otherwise known as bootstrapped, uh, Greg's insights carry the weight of 30 years in the software business. His journey includes pivotal roles in the startup and growth stages of at least three companies, generating over $2 billion in total revenue, which is a significant testament to the profound impact that he's had on the entrepreneurial landscape. But Greg is more than just a seasoned voice. He's also the paid advisor to 40 uh, in fact, more than 40 practical SaaS, software as a service founders. He's also the host of the Practical Founders podcast and the mastermind behind gregslist.com, which is a, a hub that connects local software communities and highlights the success stories of practical founders who often self-funded or with minimal invest yeah, investment right. achieve substantial exits in the startup game. So in this episode, we're going to explore everything from common misconceptions about funding, the keys to successful exits, and the practical path to success. And I believe, Greg, we're also going to get to discuss his passionate advocacy for why practical founders is a, a solid approach, both in terms of reducing stress, but also actually building valuable companies whilst leading those fulfilling personal lives. So if anyone's ever wondered about the ins and outs of going funded versus bootstrapped, this episode is for you. <laughs> Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Alexis. I, I don't know if you called me old in there, but uh, seasoned. I'll take seasoned. Yeah. Seasoned is right. Experienced. Well, experienced. Yeah. And, th and, that's, and that's what we need, right? You've had a huge variety of experience. You know, some, some business owners and entrepreneurs have perhaps had the same year in business repeated many times, whereas mm -hmm. you've achieved so much in so many businesses. And I want to start by delving into that because you've yeah. been part of both VC funded and practical bootstrap startups. Yeah. Give me a bit of an, an insight into what's been that background and what led to your shift towards promoting the, the practical founder way. Well, I'll try to get through it quickly. It's a long and stressful history in some ways, so we could talk about that. But I, I started, and it's all about software, so some of the things haven't changed. I focused on the sales, then sales and marketing software in all three of the companies that grew big, and not everything I did grew big. But And I've done very different things at very different stages of all of those companies. So I was part of one of the first software products, the companies that built the first software product first used by millions of salespeople in the 90s, back in the old days, called Act Software. And that grew and we sold that company in the early 90s and created another software company, a precursor of the CRM. And then it was CRM, which was VC funded. And we took public in 1999, 2000 in those boom times and sold to Sage in the UK later, uh, a year and a half uh, later. And I've done everything in the, in the software business except code. Okay. So I'm not an engineer, but I've done everything from sales, marketing, run software businesses and had 250 employee, global employees report to me. And in 2010 to 2015, I was the chief marketing officer for Infusionsoft, which also raised funding, but didn't sell. So SalesLogix raised VC funding and sold the company 
successfully in an IPO and eventually to Sage and Infusionsoft raised VC funding $100 million worth and didn't sell. So it's two different scenarios raising funding. And it's not all about VC funding. And so uh, these days, I'm a fanatic uh, advisor, helper, mentor, uh, contributor, instigator in the global community of software founders. So I dig in deeply. I talk to dozens of software founders a week. I'm in over 50 uh, software businesses deeply. So I'm seeing what's changed, changing in the world this year versus last year and what's new in the dental software market in the UK compared to the US and all the nitty gritty there. So I love to be very active and I've seen the world change in the last five to seven years. Uh, the old days, quite simply, if you wanted to make a big software company that changed the world and did all that before it was cool, uh, you raised VC funding and you built Windows software and it was very expensive to build and took a long time. And then you raised more funding to go, you know, to put your sales and marketing channels in place and more funding and so forth. And the times were different. There wasn't tens of thousands of software companies. There was a few. So if you had funding, you had an advantage and it got you to market and you kind of needed it to build software. You just, you couldn't bootstrap it. It was so expensive to build software, but now it isn't expensive to build software and it isn't expensive to go to market. And there's a very active acquisition market for three, five, $10 million recurring revenue software businesses that shows up with multiples of revenue in most cases, unlike most businesses that sell for multiples of profits. So the world has changed. And meanwhile, everybody kept saying, I have a software startup idea. You raise funding. Isn't that what you do? And then they get, in some sense, hooked on the drugs where the times have changed. You don't actually need to do it. And more SaaS founders are making more prize winnings from growing and selling software companies who didn't raise VC funding than those who did. We just don't see that in the media. So that's uh, all the shortest story I can tell about what I've seen. So now I'm waving my hands for these SaaS founders who say, thinking about raising money, trying to keep them off the big funding drugs. There's a better way to do it. I feel a little bit like the doctor that says, don't take all these fancy prescriptions here in the States. We've over overdosed that, you know, it's better if you eat healthy and exercise and, you know, stay alive longer. So there's a myth out there that funding is what you do, that funding increases your odds. And this is VC funding when people wave their hands, 3 million pounds, 10 million pounds, VC funding or more. It doesn't increase your odds and it doesn't make life less stressful. So those are all the things we could dig into today. Love that. And, uh, and you know, I'm so glad to, to be speaking to you today, Greg, because you've had that visibility on both sides. And from my side, as, as we've talked about outside of this interview, I've always gone down the practical bootstrap yeah. route with my yeah. businesses because I've felt the concern. And I, and I know other business owners who have gone down the funding route and I've had those conversations. What I want to start off by doing is perhaps diving in to what it looks like under each model. Because for those yeah. of us on one side of the fence yeah. than the other, actually, it's not that visible as to what it looks like. So right. let's start with a, a funded business, because as you say, that's kind of where you started off uh, with the software businesses that you're involved with. What does that look like? Because when I when I see it, it tends to be, you know, there's an idea, maybe there's some, you know, it's the classical people working in a garage, they're, you know, eating yeah. ramen and uh, yeah. rice and just keeping their costs really low. But then there's enough of a, of a thing that they need to develop. And so they go out and get funding and they get their first round of funding. Talk me through, like, what does that actually look like in, yeah. that, organ in that organization when they've got that money? How are they having to spend it? How are, what's that doing for them? Yeah. And, and what right. stresses and, and reality does that bring? Well, in the States, uh, uh, even in the United States, across the country, not just in Silicon Valley or New York yeah. in the tech centers, about 20% of all software companies raise big venture funded institutional capital from professional investors. And uh, these are the big doses of capital, usually starting with a couple million dollars and going up from there. And uh, Facebook started without funding. If you remember the story, they started the dorm room. Yeah. 
in a university and eventually took funding. But the funding they took in Silicon Valley was the traditional VC funding. And there's a place for that in the world. There's a lot of, if you're starting Tesla and you need, you know, or a satellite company or even a really big software company that's got very complicated and expensive, you just can't mm, code it with a few engineers as you can with most software businesses. There's a place for VC funding oh. and sometimes it can work, but literally 50% of these cheered up VC funded, we won the prize, we won, we got funded, 50% of them fail outright. Mm. It's an experimentation game. It's a startup crazy, let's see if it'll work game, which is very, the reason it exists because the normal world doesn't work like that way. So sure. here, look, give it a try. We'll see if it works. 75% of all these VC funded startups don't actually pay back investors. So these smart investors and all this due diligence and all this effort and the money and everything, 75% of them, it's kind of a wash for everybody. And then you start getting into the smaller percentage of them where maybe 10% of all of the VC funded companies start to get interesting. And the big wins are the 1% of the 1% that we read about in the tech media and the global newspapers that are the global news that uh, make everybody say, I guess that's what you do. I want to win big. So it must be VC funding. The problem is we just don't hear about the alternative. So I've actually played that game. I've won that game. I've lost that game. I'm still an investor. I talk to VCs all the time. There's a place for it. Uh, it's an all or nothing bet. When mm -hmm. you start taking two, five million pounds, 10 million pounds of VC funding, it's a rocket ride. You're climbing Everest. We're going to go as fast as possible up this crazy hill and reach a, you know, escape velocity in the rocket. And if it doesn't work, it gets really painful. Like there's a lot of extreme stress for those that raise big funding and aren't climbing anymore. Their growth rate has stopped. So, and that's kind of the thing. If your growth rate stops and you can't raise another round, you're literally stuck and screwed and it just doesn't end well. And nobody really talks about that, but that's 75% of uh, VC funded software companies. So just beware ye all, all ye who enter here, you know, that it's a professional game. It's an all or nothing game. It's very exciting. It's very stressful. It's an all in kind of game and uh, usually doesn't work, but there's a chance. Yeah, that's really, I really like the analogy there of, you know, it's, it's getting the rocket ship. It's getting that satellite yeah. launched into space because I can totally see how for certain companies, like, as you say, if you want to create a yeah. uh, satellite internet company, or if you want to create essentially open AI, right? An incredible, right. massive, you know, large language model that, that requires just so much in terms of cost to even see whether it's going to be a good idea and whether you might get there. I think it's it's clear that that requires huge amounts of capital. And then, as you say, on the other, if you don't need that level of capital or if you're looking for a different journey, then you might want to go different, down a different route. Before we explore that different route, let's say that we're talking, we're, we're in a business that's decided, yep, there's some fundamental uh, technology or assets that require significant capital up front before I get customers paying for it and so on. As a result, what's, what does it feel like What's when we talk about it's all or nothing and it's stressful and so on? What does that look like practically? What are the decisions that, that tend to have to be made or are being made yeah. that cause it stress, to be stressful? Why is it stressful? Well, it's stressful because in whether any startup or any venture, if you try something big, you make the bets and it doesn't work, you're probably putting the company at risk. And if it doesn't work, we're out of business. So you have that on your head in literally running out of capital. If we run out of capital before we get to the next stage and step, they're built to be, you know, to take the rocket fuel, the adrenaline, to get up faster. And so they're burning cash. They're taking losses. If it doesn't work, sorry, you're kind of out of the game. So it's an all or nothing bet. It's very exciting. The company I mentioned sells logics that we went from four of us around a kitchen table said, let's do this. The market is, is growing. They're a little different time, the, the, the mid nineties when sales software was st first starting to come in around the world. The, we went from 
five of us to 500 employees in a public company in four and a half years. Wow. Okay. So it that'll challenge anybody. And every six months to a year, if you're growing at those kind of rates, your company looks very different. And what worked for you last year, I was the startup guy. Now we're a growth company. Now we're a big company. Now we're, you know, it, it, it changes forms. There's a lot of reading. The market changes. So it's very exciting. And uh, I was literally working, you know, 60, 70, 80 hours a week and traveling around the, cause that, that was part of the game. You had to travel to see your customers in the exhibition trade shows and, and all over. I was in the London once a month for three years right. as a base for Europe. So, and we succeeded, I would say that we paid back our investors and I won a little prize from that. That's why I get to do what I, and anything I want here, but it can be very stressful. If you don't meet your milestones, then it's a little bit like a football club, you know, in the premier league in the UK, you start changing your coaches and your managers and oh. your team members and, you know, everybody gets moved around, but you don't want to be relegated. And literally in the VC funded world to use English football analogy, 75% of companies get relegated, you know, wow. after five years and very, you know, and the number keeps going down of the ones who stay, stay in the league after that. It's very stressful. It's very exciting. When it works, when it doesn't, it's really brutal. You're firing yeah. people and letting people go and, you know, making stuff up. You're kind of forced to spend it. And a lot of people really aren't sure how they're going to spend their money that they're placing bets that aren't very, they're not very confident about it because they have to place the bets. That's yeah, one of the and challenges. I, and I want to explore that because there's a couple, a couple of things that come to mind. So, so one is I know from talking to a friend of mine who's got a software business and they have taken on investment. One of the things yeah. that I hadn't appreciated is the need to spend that money. Because I remember when he was taking this particular round of funding and he said, oh, we're, we're oversubscribed. Like we've got more investors than we expected. And so he said, oh, that's fantastic. Yes, clapping, right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it's like, that's amazing. Like, why don't you take more money? And, and I can't remember the exact number. So let, let's say he was looking for 2 million and instead there was 5 million on the table. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, the temptation is just be like, well, I'll take, I'll take the five million or, or maybe four million and, right. you know, mm -hmm. get it a decent rate and so on. And what was really interesting is that based on his experience of talking to others, it was like, no, 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 don't do that because you have to scale up so fast to spend that money. Right. And the likelihood of you then hitting your milestones goes down. Right. And then if you can't hit your milestones. Puts your business at risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because then you get to a point, whether it's one year or two years, where you're needing more money, even just to stay alive, to be able to pay all these people that you've now got yeah. around you. And I remember one particular conversation I had with a business owner where he said, and the worst bit is additional investors are unlikely to come on unless your original investor is continuing right. with you, because that's not a good sign. Right. And he couldn't get the original investor to pick up the phone. And so yeah. I remember having a particular phone call conversation with him where he said, I said, well, what's your runway look like? Which for those not in mm -hmm. the industry is like, runway is basically like, how how long have you got until the money runs out? And he said, 11 days. And I just, <laughs> I just remember that pain that I saw in him in mm -hmm. that moment. Of, yeah. it, and it wasn't even just for him. It was for all the staff and so on. Like, he couldn't even give them notice period. Like, that ship had sailed. And so I saw that stress. And then the other thought I have is, because as you said, like, stressful, particularly if it's not going well. And that was a situation, it wasn't even not going well. Like, it wasn't like he wasn't getting, the, the investor wasn't speaking to him because he hadn't hit the milestones, just couldn't get him on the phone. And then on the other side, you know, even when things are going well, I know there's a business that you joined when things had been going well, like the mm -hmm. growth had been incredible. But as a result, like you were brought in and the previous uh, person fired to basically because that person could get them there, but the CEO didn't feel mm -hmm. like it could get them to the next level and get to the, you know, the kind of hundred million and so on. And that right. was what you were brought in to do. So, and that's, that's even when things are going well, the CEO's, CEO is having yeah. to make big decisions yeah. to like fire yeah. people that have done their job well. So talk me through, like, give me some examples of the sorts of decisions that you've seen in those businesses which have caused that stress because ultimately that's what it comes down to right it's decisions that you're having to make with your time with the people around you with whatever you're doing what are some of the examples that we're having to make when you've taken funding 
Well, when you've taken funding, you don't sell 20 to 30% of your business to raise this funding to have it sit in the bank. That would be the most expensive thing you could buy or sell. And you use it because you think you're going to use that money to invest as a loss, to overinvest, to get there faster, to win a prize. And keep doing that until you're the market leader who, like Uber or Facebook or, you know, OpenAI is playing this game that walks away with the big prize and creates the next billion dollar company. And that's actually the math that works. That's when it works. So along the way, there's explosive growth when it works, which means people are challenged every single day. It's mm. kind of not quite pandemonium, but uh, it's very stressful and it's very challenging for most people to keep up in their roles from year to year as the company is growing 100 or more percent a year. Can you, can you give me a specific example so I can really get that feeling of what yeah. does that look like? Yeah, it's in my practical founder peer groups. There are a lot of early, I work with a lot of practical founders who are growing software companies, somewhere between two and five million of annual recurring revenue, the revenue. You start to see if the managers, the leaders mm -hmm. in your business started can kind of play the new game of getting from three to 10 million. They got you to 3 million, but all of a sudden the sport changes and it's a little bit like football to rugby or, you know, it's not quite uh, cricket or something like that, but the sport literally changes and you literally have to stop playing the old sport and play this new sport of uh, doing it with a large team or a larger team and building a factory. So the business evolves very quickly as it grows. Uh, a, a hundred million pound business is very different than a 1 million pound business. A hundred percent grower is very different than a 20% a year grower. So the roles change. That's the biggest change. And generally speaking, most people don't make it from the startup stage stage to a hundred million in revenue. I've done that at least once in my from one, you know, zero to a hundred million once, ten million to a hundred million once. And most people don't survive those transitions because it's a different game. So you're having to politely uh, move people out and move new people in and. Can you talk me yeah. through perhaps a decision or a couple of decisions that you had to take that you found particularly painful when going on those journeys? Well, when somebody is amazing and they've put in years of their life to help you get to a certain point and they're struggling to grow to the next level, they can see it, I can see it, everybody can see it. They were great as the individual contributor, but now they got 10 employees. And you double that next year and they got 20 employees and they haven't done the work to keep up. So when you have to move a leader like that out, a trusted leader who worked, you know, uh, before who became a friend, you won a lot of battles together and went through a lot together, but to transition them out is, is always very difficult. And I kind of learned a polite and structured process for it in the long run, but it's never, never fun. I'm sorry this is your last day at the company. You've been a great contributor, but the you know, the company's different and we have different needs. So that's the faster you grow, the more that's the main challenge is finding leaders who can succeed at the current level you're playing. Which which is a really hard thing for people to hear, right? Because to to some extent as the leader, you're then recruiting people who yeah. if they do a really, really great job. Yes. They're probably someday. Yeah, they're probably not going to stay in the organization. Right. <laughs> because it's like right. the better a job they do, the faster they grow, yeah. the faster right. you get to And to all life. of us who love this exciting startup game, we know which phase of life we are best at and we generally stick around there. Generally people who work at 50 to 100 million revenue turnover companies don't really succeed in the messy getting to a million yeah. startup phase and vice versa. So it's just the nature of the game. And that's actually the nature of the game. So don't say we're going to build a, you know, be worth a billion dollars, be a unicorn someday, unless you're willing to 
do what it takes to survive and you can't avoid these things. It's especially acute for founders who were good at the starting phase, but not good with the 500 employees growth phase. Yeah. You know, so CEOs and founders go through this themselves. And with VCs, they have tough conversations about you need to step it up at this level. And VCs can help some to some extent in that regard, but uh, generally they're on the sidelines saying, well, I guess you lost the game. Well, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, and 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 you kind of um, are alluding as well to that relationship between the VC and the leader. Um, obviously, when things are going well, I suspect that if anything, the leader might feel like I don't know, you know, I don't know why I've even got the VC there. They 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 barely seem to pay any attention. They seem to be focused on all the investments that aren't doing so well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when whenever I say, "Have you yeah. got any suggestions?" Whatever, they go, "No, keep going." I suspect right. the difficulty, as with most relationships, is when things start to go a bit sour. Are there right. any examples you've seen of where that relationship has then caused that business leader a lot of stress when, you know, as a result of having it? Because that's one of the things that as, a, as an entrepreneur who's never had an investor, yeah. I've never had to worry about that. Like, all I've had to manage is the relationship between me and my co-founder and then my team and customers and so on. I've never had that, that kind of investor. What does that look like? And have you got any examples of where that, that's caused pain? Well, I can think of a few examples without naming names where there was a lot of clapping when they raised big funding, mm-hmm. $10, $20 million in early stages, which is quite a bit of money. There was money available, as your friend noted uh, a few years ago, and and they took it. And when the market changed and uh, their business changed and they didn't hit their milestones. Uh, the investors have a lot of claws. Uh, we need you to get to here or we've got a problem. And they're on the board. The CEO effectively reports to a board. The CEO's on the board, but they sometimes the venture inv- the investors have a lot of say. They give you 10, 20, 30, 50, $100 million. They have a lot of say in the business. And they get to swap you out. So it's very stressful for a founder sitting in the, I just raised this money. I can't figure out how to get the miles to the next milestone, raise the next round. Uh, yeah. Nobody wants to do a down round. Everybody's, you know, everybody's coming after me. They're calling me every day. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And there's an extreme amount of stress. So the challenge with the VC funded game is we hear about the success stories. They make the media, they make social media. That's what we think the success is. The majority of the cases, it's extremely painful and the CEO gets fired and or has to wind down the company, which you can imagine in slow motion, how painful that is for a founder to wake up every day. They had their big vision. They got people on board. They're having to make drastic decisions and in some sense do unhealthy things that, you know, please the investors that isn't great for the business. The investors have an all or nothing approach. Either it grows big or, uh, you know, we want to get out, we want to write it off. And so there's, you know, if you're a slow grower, maybe good for the business customers and employees, but it's not good for the investors. So you're kind of stuck. That stuckness is uh, in Silicon Valley. We think it's all sweetness and light and happiness, but it is, quite brutal right now with layoffs and founders underwater and they can't get out on their investments and the funded company funded startup wind downs are happening quickly so this year they got fund or got overfunded two years ago and they didn't make it and now they're starting to shut down it's really brutal yeah and so just just to Make that explicit then. So let, let's say we've got a business that's taken some some funding and just to make it like for specificity, let's say through whatever stages it's ended up with like, let's say three million worth of funding. As a result, it's had to give away a fairly decent amount of equity as part of that growth. And initially things were going well. And then for whatever reason, market forces, you know, yeah. inflation rate, something not expected, things just haven't quite been where they'd like. Now, hypothetically, yeah. let's say that actually... If this were a non-funded business, you'd look at it going, ah, it could get there. Like it's it's yeah. making progress. It's still acquiring. Let's customers. right size. Let's stop overspending. Let's get exactly. back to basics. Let's get back to 
break even, so we're exactly. not burning money, and we're we, and we're and default so alive, you, as they say. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's what you'd normally do. What have you seen when you've got that funded setup? Is there pressure to actually go? No, don't right size and make a meager profit and just have yeah. it carry on. I want it liquidated and we want cash out. Or what, what have you seen? The bigger the investment, so three million dollars pounds is a modest amount of mm-hmm. startup investment, early stage sure. seed or early, you know, early stage funding, but that leads to bigger and bigger rounds of yeah. funding. So the bigger the round of funding with a professional fund investor, and not everybody who raises a few million pounds of, of funding gets these big investors, the more likely they would rather shut it down than to have it grow at 20% for 10 years. It's just not the sport. It really, it just is actually looks bad on their books. If they you raise a billion dollars and you start investing $50 million in you know, a dozen companies, you literally want to shut down the ones that aren't going to be, you know, that pay you back 10 times. It's, it's, it's literally the game. And I have uh, several founders on my podcast, John Nordbark talks about it and the podcast. Uh, He had a successful, growing, profitable company and his V venture investor from Silicon Valley, one of the big guys who with a big name said, we'd rather you shut down than keep going at this rate just because it just doesn't work for the math of the VCs. So uh, VCs aren't evil. It's just the game they're playing. It's explicit. It's known. If you don't choose to play that game, uh, you know, then don't play the game. Yeah, that's interesting. And and this will show my naivety is when I was setting up that imaginary case study, I was envisaging that growth had really heavily slowed and, or, you know, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and plateaued for a while, but, you know, things were going... Whereas you're saying that even at a decent, like in the world of practical founders like myself, particularly after you've been around for a few years, a 20% growth is not shabby. Like, you know, and and particularly if you've had a few knocks. No, that's not acceptable. You're saying it's not acceptable. in in Doubling is a minimum, you know, and most companies and, you know, they'll put up with, well, let's say they'll put up with 50% growth with the hope of getting back to doubling Mm -hmm. again. Because they have a clock ticking, the investors do, that says in five to seven years, we have to sell this company and make our 10 to 100 plus times, you know, payback. And so hurry up and get there. And you can't get there on 20%. But, you know, which is one of the reasons why it's reasonable to stay off of VC funding and grow for 20% for 10 years and create a big and valuable company. Like, why not? Yeah, and, and we'll we'll switch gears to that because. Uh, but before I do, like that point around the, it, the needing to double, and if you don't, then then it, it doesn't run for them. Uh, it's so clear to me when you say, like, from their perspective as the investors, they've got to convince their own investors, like where they're getting yeah. the money from, yeah. that that it's good to invest with them, and they're playing averages, right? Like they'll say, oh yeah. well, on average across our portfolio, yeah. it's fifty percent, mm-hmm. you know, hundred percent growth. And if they're having to say, well, actually, it's not 100% growth, it's 60% growth. But don't worry, that's we've had some amazing achievements. Right, that's what's happening now in the venture capital land. They're yeah. having to ex- explain to their investors why they're under their growth rate. And let's, you know, just to be clear, venture investors know what the game is. 50% are going to fail outright in the early stages. And one or two companies out of the 20 they invest in over seven years is going to pay back the fund. That's where the excitement is. So they're kind of saying, are you going to be a blockbuster or not? And if it's not, uh, we kind of want to move you back and you don't get another round of funding and sorry. Yeah. But for the the investors, they're able to basically spread that risk and say, okay, well, you know, out of 10 businesses, I'm only basically going to make all Mm -hmm. my money. Two are going to hold a portfolio for a founder. It's binary. I win or lose. Yeah. And winning is rare. Indeed. And, the, and and even if you win, in my experience, and we'll come on to this as a practical founder, like a lot of the people that I meet who have won in inverted commas that have taken the investment, yeah. got big, had a big exit. There, yeah. there are a couple of things at play. One is dilution. One is that they've had to lose a lot of their shares along the way. So actually yeah. the business might sell for a um, hundred million plus, but actually it's not like, oh yes. And they've got a hundred million. It's like, you know, they're, they're, they're down to... Yeah, they're typically, in these uh, rocket ride 
companies that we hear about or they uh, go public uh, in uh, on the NASDAQ here in the States and, and all of that. Uh, the average uh, of the those public, newly public companies, newly listed companies, the average investment from their investors is 80% of the company. So founders right. and employees own less than 20% of the companies and sometimes 5% or 10%. Wow. Um, if they've over overdone it with funding. So as a result, your you know best case scenario, the the essentially the yeah. winning the lottery could mean that best case scenario you're kind of at the kind of five million kind of exit, and actually yeah, I, I, yeah. could be less. Yeah. So I you know there's ways to win that game and to be prudent about how much funding you raise and hit your milestones and time it when you start your company and when you exit your company in the boom time, it's a great time to sell in 2021 when the market was way up. So in that case, the VCs can win and the founders can win. Uh, and that does happen. But what we don't see when somebody says we went public for a billion dollar valuation is if you can literally see it in the filing report, the founder, you know, the two original founders probably own 10% of the company. Mm together and if you know that's and you know that's that's not a small amount and so forth but i think there's easier ways to win that prize money and make change in the world and build a valuable company and have do it a lot less stressfully along the way and that's what i call practical founders who are building these steady more compounding let's say slower growth, less crazy, more managed, more frugal, more efficient, and I would say more disciplined approach. So we, we hear about the two founders, create this company, raise all this money, go public on the NASDAQ. They each win $50 million net, you know, or, you know before taxes kind of thing. Yeah. Well, another way to do that is to grow a company, you know, with a co-founder and get it to and revenues, you know, get it to profitability where it's paying the bills and then get to a million dollars in revenue and grow it and get to, you know, five or $10 million in revenue and sell it for $50 million, Yeah, you know, and founders can walk away with the prize there. So it's different ways to do it. You know, sometimes the dilution, the, the VCs say there's always a bigger pie. Well, yep. How much, how's this going to work if I don't own, you own 80% and I own 20% at the end? Well, if the VC funding creates the acceleration, it's a bigger pie and it's a multi-billion dollar exit, then you're going to win more. But that's also pretty rare these days. Yeah. And unfortunately, I've seen plenty of examples where the entrepreneur takes the investment uh, with an expectation that the investor is going to do a lot to make the pie bigger. And then they feel like, the investor takes quite a big step back. Yeah. Basically, go right. It's on you now. Yeah. I'm going to be holding you accountable to your to your metrics, and that's painful. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the only- price of raising money. You, you, if you're savvy, you know it's mostly about the money, and you try to put in the controls and checks there. But if you come with big money, you get a lot of extra conditions, you know, and stipulations, board seats, and you know. yeah. And and I get that there's, you know, people are going eyes open into those agreements and, and yeah. that they should mm-hmm. know what the case is. However, as my experience is that until you get quite a long way down the line of seeking investment, only then might you then start to right. have these expectations set. Right. So so as a result, I think it's useful that we're, we're sharing this for people who are con- considering yeah. the options to switch on to the other options. I mean, your podcast, the Practical Founders podcast, mm-hmm. focuses on the success stories of founders yeah. who, like myself, who are building software right. companies without big funding. Can you share perhaps a specific standout success story that really resonates for you to kind of show this alternative way that, that you would recommend and promote? Well, uh, it's practicalfounders.com. I'm just going to go to, you know, one of my last podcasts. I'm sharing the success stories and having these in-depth conversations of you grew a valuable software company. Oftentimes they've sold it. Let's talk about what you did. How did you do that? What happened along the way? And, you know, how did you sell it or exit? The average practical founder I've interviewed on the podcast, 75 founders so far, has 
created a founder equity value of $50 million on average. Yeah. Which means, and sometimes they've sold it and sometimes they haven't sold it and it's still growing. So I'll just look at the last one that, that I posted on last interview with the founder. I posted on Friday with Harry Hopkins here in Dallas. He was the tech co-founder and he had two other co-founders who knew something about the medical billing world here in the States. Of course, we have private healthcare and it's pretty screwed up and there's a, you know, a lot of billing nightmares and complexities and opacity and so forth. So they built a product with the three of them built a product. He built the first product. The other two sold and supported it. Three founders got to revenue, almost a million dollars in revenue, just the three of them with this early product. So that's a frugal way to do it. You don't need to hire 20 people or 500 people to get started. The co-founder wrote the product. The other, you know, CEO co-founder sold the product and they got revenues going. They started hiring people. They kept improving their software that would look at a physician's office billing and see where they're missing billings. And one of their first customers paid them $500 a month and the first month found a million dollar billing problem. And they kept going from there. It was a rocket ride growth story. They went from three employees to almost a thousand employees in six years without outside funding, a little debt, but no equity investors, and eventually sold the company just last month. And so the founders and the employees all won a prize there. And now the company they created found a home in a bigger medical billing solutions services company in the States. That's a good home for the business, and it can continue on its mission to change the way physicians' offices and eventually hospitals optimize and uh, improve their billing procedures so there's not as much falling through the cracks. And so that was a six-year ride without VC funding. So it's a myth that you can't get it going unless you got funding. It's a myth that you can't get it selling without funding, and it's a myth that you can't grow fast without big funding. Uh, there's plenty of these. So that's one example was nearly a $70 million exit for these founders. And a lot of it was included services. So they had a interesting hybrid product and service solution for these medical offices. Interesting. Cause that, cause often the services part of software businesses is not liked by the, by oh, the yeah. investors, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Software investors don't like services because you have to add people The more services you do, the more people you have to add. That adds complexity and weight. It's not as scalable. And it's also almost always lower margin. Mm. The next version of the software you sell almost almost doesn't cost anything. You know, another bits and bytes in the cloud. And so it's very high margin compared to selling hamburgers or something else, medical devices or something like that. So they tend to shy away from having too much services in a business. But in this case, what the physician's offices wanted here in the States was, I have the technology. Can you just take care of this for me? And, you know, can you just do it? And that's, yeah. they, you know, they uh, literally grew so fast there. So it's totally possible. And what we, we don't hear these stories because they're not billion-dollar exits. Yeah. They didn't take VC funding, so nobody was tracking them. But they're winning. The founders are winning bigger prizes, walking away with a bigger prize when they sell the company than most VC funded founders, because you don't get there on average. And if you get there, you have sold most of your company away. So you get a minority share in the end. So there's all kinds of ways to do it in practical founder land, bootstrap software, no outside funding, or even a little bit of funding, angel investment or small funding could be useful and doesn't really put you on the the risky game of Mm. go big or go home. Yeah, and and I, I think that that's powerful to reflect on the fact that, as you say, just because they, you don't go the investment route doesn't mean that you don't create a sizable, high impact business yeah. that is worth many tens of millions. But also, what's interesting, like the when you talked about those examples, like I think you had uh, one example on the VC side where they're growing. In fact, it was um, well, your own business where you went from five to 500 people in a very yeah. short period of time. And then, of course, in this example, we're talking about going from a small number of people to a thousand, yeah. but over a longer period of time and yeah. without the stress of 
if we don't hit a particular number, then yeah. da da da, or even yeah. actually, I need to spend more time going and getting investors rather than running the actual business. And actually, right. I think one of the other things that I see is you have the choice. Like in that business where they grew so fast into over six years, if at any point there's yes. something else going on yeah. in their personal lives or whatever that meant right. that actually taking the foot off the gas would make sense, they'd have that choice. Right. Yeah. The, that's the biggest thing. And I don't mm. think Harry would say it was not stressful, stressful, sure. but they had control over the variables. Mm. They sold new contracts. They managed the cash flow from them. They hired accordingly. If something didn't happen, they didn't have to hire. They could slow down, but they found they created a lot of value very quickly and word spread. And so they were successful in that. So Bootstrapping and growing a software company is stressful, but you have control over the game you're playing. You could slow it down at any time. You don't have a gun to your head that says you can't slow down. And what happens with founders is they maintain what we say, their optionality. They have all their options available to them. I can keep it growing. I can slow mm. it down. I can slow it way down and take a lot of profits. I could sell it now. I could sell it later. I could not sell it. I could wait for a best offer. I could not wait for a best offer. I could, and there, you know, I could finance it in some other ways. There's all kinds of ways to do it. And, I, and there's all kinds of, let's say, exit paths or paths mm. to success that I just wrote about in a 60 page free ebook on my website, the seven success paths of practical founders. These founders are all winning in different ways. Some sell their companies to financial buyers or strategic buyers, or some run it for a long time. Some are taking profits out. There's all kinds of ways to do it. In VC funded land, there's one way to do it. You grow fast, sell your company for in seven to seven ish years, and we all, you know, and win big or else. So it's kind of an all or nothing. And that control of your destiny, that optionality to, sell it now or not sell it now and do do it the way you want. I want to have this culture. I want to have this business model. I want to sell services. I don't mm. care what VCs say about services. It's what our customers want. We're going to do it that way. That control is pretty fundamental to the, I would say the success, but also the reasonable life that you can have as a practical founder growing a, a business. It's all hard but it doesn't have to be harder with bad stress than it needs to be. I mean, from your personal experience, what's the, what have you had to give up? Like what are the, you know, essentially the commitments, the decisions that you've had to make and what's been the impact to you when you've been in, yeah. in PC funded businesses? Yeah. And I signed up for it and I said, mm -hmm. we're going to create change in the world. And isn't that exciting? And I'm going to win a prize and uh, grow through the process. But most people don't know that the uh, 20 years out of the 30, my 30 year careers in the VC funded game, I worked at least a weekend day every single week and almost all holidays. Holidays were a day for me to catch up and on top of traveling constantly and so forth. So uh, other than my family, which I didn't lose, and it's quite possible to lose a family in yeah. this crazy adventure it's exciting and crazy and stressful and the rest, but I didn't have, I didn't work out. I didn't have hobbies. I didn't read a lot of books. It was work and family and that was it. And it was pretty exciting, you know, we, but uh, it was also stressful for many of those years. I couldn't sleep past five o'clock in the morning because, Oh my God, something's coming. I got the VC call today. I got, I got to move somebody out. I've got something happened in the market that, you know, a competitor is coming after this. Mm. We got a problem with this. We have a customer. So it's exciting, but most people aren't signed up for the kind of work. I mean, most entrepreneurs are, but like most normal people, you know, this is not a nine to five. I don't think I've ever worked nine to five. I can't even get my head around that. I mean, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, and that's, and that's the thing, because I have, and I have a lot ever since I nearly did lose my yeah. family as a result of doing yeah. the, the kind of investment uh -huh. of time. 
And also, I know lots of other business owners who maybe haven't lost their family yet, but have had irreparable, irreparable oh, yes. damage uh-huh. to their health. And yeah. How's your, do you feel like, oh yeah, you just got lucky or like did health suffer or, you know, did, did you manage to just walk that fine line? Like what, what was that like for your health over that 20 year period? Well, deep stress, moving fast. I had a back problem that literally had me leaning sideways, you know, face like this for years. If I sat too long and the rest, like 15 years, finally gotten over it with exercise and, you know, other things like that. So it, you know, it was really quite brutal. And I was kind of signing up for the game. I guess this is how you win a prize. It's what the big boys do, you know, but I don't think I would choose it the same way if I had an alternative, like the practical founder of modern sport that's available to me. And that's actually one of the reasons I think I'm interested in it is there's just a better way for founders to have a life and a successful business too. And I know you're after that as well. And there's all kinds of ways to do that. It's not one way to do that, but I think that's a magical thing. If you're smart about it, you can have a life and a great business too. And if you could go back 30 years, what advice would you give yourself? I would say chill a little bit, but I don't know how I would, you know, how I could do that. I signed up for the game that wasn't about chill. Chill out, you know. No, it's the big game. It's the big sport. You know, I've I've run teams of 100 to 250 employees been responsible for them inside public companies for six years out of that, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, responsible all the way up to the public markets, criticizing what I do and all the way down and everything, you know, just the turn. So just be aware that it's a game. I think I managed it. You know, I didn't go off the deep end and, I, you know, I think I kept together, but, and I didn't have really irreparable harm. Uh, that came from it. But I think I, if, if I would have had the practical founder opportunity of the modern SaaS business, which wasn't available then, mm. I think that would have been a much better way to succeed because I'm smart, savvy and frugal and practical and customer focused. And I would have built a better long-term business. Here's another thing. You build these rocket ride things. They're really not built for being long-term businesses. They're built for going up as fast as possible and then see what happens. 80% of the so- software companies that went public when the stock market was up two years ago in 2021 are, are well below their offering price. They're just built to, you know, shoot the moon and see what happens once the funding dries up. So I'm a, you know, I'm a founder first long-term thinker. And I think I would have, I don't know that I would have bootstrapped in the same way because years ago it was just a much different game, but these days I would have. Amazing. Yeah. It makes me wonder whether when we talk about the metaphor of those VC funded uh, businesses being rockets, perhaps they're more like fireworks. Well, if you build the right rocket and it has the right stages and you do the right things, you know, the rocket can work. But if you put rocket fuel in a, you know, a shed, it's just going to pop, you know, and most startups are not built with the rocket, you know, opportunity, and, and when people talk about teams, that what they're saying, you know, we invest in teams and the team's important, the founders rest. Like, you know, Elon Musk knows how to build the rocket, literally, you know, as it's flying. And they'll figure out whatever hard problem comes their way can get to the other side. And it's an extreme sport. Love that. And who has been perhaps one of or the most happy, de-stressed, practical yeah. founders that you've come across? Like- yeah. Well, there's... That's with the seven success paths, there's multiple ways to do it right. And so the first thing is what works for you as a founder? What do you want to create in the world? What change you want to make? How fast do you want to go? What do you want to do in the end? It can all be different. And that's actually where the conversation starts. And with the founder, like I'm literally not selling funding. I mean, it's when you take advice from VCs about what you should do, it's kind of like taking nutritional advice from McDonald's. I think you should get a Big Mac and supersize it every time. I think you should come back tomorrow is what they'll say. They're not selling, you know, eat more vegetables and drink mostly water. Like that would, that would be helpful for people. But one example 
I would say the happiest founders I know are running steady, profitable, growing businesses in the 20 to 30% growth range, mm-hmm. which is challenging, but not crazy. Yeah. And it's not easy. It's not, but it's not crazy. And they're not trying to sell the company anytime soon. They're trying to grow and build and build and make our culture better and make our team better and make our customers happier and improve the product and do the right things like a long run approach. Hmm. So Todd Watson, who I think is the first founder I interviewed on the podcast, I've known him for years and years. And he introduced me to the idea of why would you sell a company if this is so much fun? So some entrepreneurs like the game. They like their team. They like their customers. They like making change. They like every quarter. We have a new challenge to face, but it isn't crazy. It's a reasonable pace. The modern software business doesn't take all this expense to get going. But if you do it right, can be a compounding machine. Happy customers tell other customers. And it's easier to attract new customers and partners. And uh, recurring revenue builds on itself. If your customers love your product and they buy more and they don't leave, right, this uh, flywheel can increase. And Todd's got a very happy business. As he grew up, he worked in a, let's say, a I don't know if you have them at the UK, the, we call them camps here, like kid camp. Mm-hmm. You send yep. your kids to camp and then there's camp leaders and everybody's having fun and leading. He, he was one of those people. His, his dad had a Christian camp in Arizona and he runs his company like that. I mean, they're very tightly focused, but you ask him, what's your big revenue goal for next year? We don't have that, right? Uh, what's your hiring process? I still talk, they have, you know, 50, 60, 70 employees now. Uh, after all these years, it's very profitable. The founder still talks to everybody who joins the company and explains, this is what we do here. It's how we do it. If you're not in for that, then don't join us. They accomplish so much. They're a crack team with the right metrics. They're not pumping this thing for the false metrics, false flavors. They're doing what's right to the customers. They're regrouping when they need to regroup. They're developing people at the pace they can be developed. And it's a lot of fun. So entrepreneurs like us, we think this is fun. It's actually kind of hard. It's challenging. It's, you have to kind of keep pushing your comfort zone. And it's a lot of responsibility to have 70 employees and 40 digits to surpass 50,000 customers. That's a lot of responsibility uh, to do that. But compared to the alternative, selling the company, which he could do, and then where, what would he do? Most of us would start another company. Let's get the team together. Let's go on a quest. Let's build something. So he didn't fall into the trap or the myth that, you know, uh, you're only successful when you win the prize. And his company is, he's got the happiest employees, the happiest customers of any founder I know. So that's one way to do it. There's multiple ways to do it. And to me, that's ultimate, that's fascinating and curious and Entrepreneurs like Todd and Harry keep explaining to me, there's no rule, there's no way to, there's many ways to do this. If you can be efficient in your business and get great employees to be focused and create leverage in your business and have happy customers who tell their friends, which is all quite possible in the software business, you can build a valuable company that grows for a long time. You know, when somebody buys a company, they're not buying it to just get the employees in the code. They're buying it because they want to keep growing it, maybe sell it someday or get the profits from it. So if a company's going to buy you because they're going to, your company's going to keep growing, why wouldn't you stay and keep growing it if that's the fun you have? So the founders get to make the choice. Maybe at some point he doesn't want to do it. He has the choice. A venture capital investor would never put up with uh, the culture their 30% growth rate, profitability. They literally just bought a ranch in the mountains of Arizona with 100 acres and a big building. And almost every week, partners, customers, teams, employees go up to the ranch and have offsites. And they, you know, have fun with all the toys up there and they work on the business. And, you know, that's not possible 
I guess Salesforce had a big ranch, but they had to sell it. You know, the stock market told them, please sell that. So you get to do more things that you want when you get this flywheel going. And it was hard to get the flywheel going in a bunch of very tough years in the beginning. But once once it was going, he protected that and nurtured that. And the business grew and grew. Imagine 30% growth for 10 years, then 20 years, then 30 years. Like that's a massive company. Yeah. And a hundred million dollar revenue business, you know, you could imagine if it kept on going in the modern world, that would sell for about 10 times, you know, maybe mm -hmm. seven times, but a successful one that big would sell for about 10 times revenues in the States. That's a billion dollar exit. There are literally fewer than a hundred founders who've made over a billion dollars in their VC funded companies. Wow. So Fantastic. it's really interesting. And so there, I'm just endlessly curious about all the different ways you can do it, what's important to these founders and how they're doing it their way and building a dream. It's very exciting to me that this world has changed and this opportunity exists. It's the greatest small business opportunity that I think has ever existed. You don't have to buy a restaurant and work 16 hours a day and then sell it for a pittance, you know, after it struggles. You can do hard work and really hard things, but the prizes are substantial and it's pretty fun. You could do it from anywhere, literally. It's kind of if you're addicted to making customers happy and figuring out hard puzzles. Love that. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Greg. It's been just amazing to be able to dive deep into this with you. I really appreciate your time. Greg, for, for people who want to learn more from you, obviously we'll link, we'll link to your website so people can uh, check out the resources yeah. that you've already mentioned. But how else should people uh, learn more from you and, uh, and reach out? Yeah. The website is practicalfounders.com and you can find the podcast there and my free resources. But I'm also um, one of the most popular contributors on LinkedIn with my posts. So I just made a post yesterday, uh, uh, Sunday, because I'm that kind of uh, entrepreneur. I keep working and uh, contributing. Uh, but my posts on Sundays get uh, 500 to, you know, a thousand likes and an incredible conversation. So there's a lot going on there. Follow me on LinkedIn and reach out to me if I can answer a question for you. Fantastic. Love it. Thank you, Greg. And I'll make sure that we link to your LinkedIn profile because, yeah, you share a lot of thought-provoking and really insightful content there, which I really, really appreciate. Well, thank you very much, Greg. It's been great talking to you. Thanks. Thank you so much for your time. If you're looking to remove the stress from your business, to have control over what's going on and be able to both grow the business at the kind of rates that we were talking about there, uh, and you're looking to, to do so in a way that actually you can enjoy the journey, that you can still have hobbies and spend time with your family and be able to, to look after your health. And actually that you just want to be able to build the business, build the rocket in a way that it doesn't fire up into the air and then explode and bring everything down in your life with it. Then I've got something that I think you can be really interested in because with my co-founder, with Paddy, with the hundreds now of other businesses that we've worked with, we've been looking at what is it that it takes for a business to be well-systemized, documented, organized, structured in such a way that it means that even the most complex parts of your business can run like clockwork, that they can work effectively and efficiently without you having to manage them day to day. And we turn that into an approach that makes it super easy to do that so that you can get any task handed over really quickly so that you can get new team members up to speed and adding value really quickly so that you can grow your team and not do so with, uh, and not have to have loads of funding or whatever to do so. And that ultimately you can create a business that is able to run itself and that you're able to take holiday and rest and do all those things so that you can be a better business owner as well. Now, if you're interested in learning that approach, you can uh, check out a masterclass that I've run on this topic at airmanual.co forward slash webinar, where I cover how you can free up 15 hours per week, remove the constant stress, get team members up to speed, 
uh, five times faster and with 80% less effort, and that you can make it possible to unlock your growth in your business. You can find that at airmanual.co forward slash webinar. And if you're interested in learning more about our step-by-step approach and particularly how the software business that we've built as a practical founders ourselves to solve this for other businesses based on our own experiences, you can find uh, more information at airmanual.co or you can actually download and get a free copy of an ebook version of uh, our guide, which includes loads of stories of, of how other people have applied it at airmanual.link forward slash discover. But otherwise, I whatever approach you take, whether you go funded, whether you go practical, whatever you do, I think Greg's advice around getting clear about what do you really want is the most important thing. What do you want from your business so that it's aligned with what you want from your life? And when you do that, you get a business that you can really enjoy and gives you the good kinds of stress that where it's fun, but not the bad times types of stress where you feel completely out of control, like things are being decided for you, that you can't live the life that you want. And so I hope that you found today's episode really valuable. If so, please share it on social media. Please tag me and Greg in. Really, really appreciate it. But otherwise, until next time, have fun.